In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And this fundamentally was John's concern, that Jesus Christ came. He is not new to the earth. He is rather the creator of all that exists. And we have some of his primary themes introduced to us here in the first five verses of his gospel, that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He is the great I am, as we are going to see in later passages. He is the one that sustains us, that has made us, and that we rely upon him. Also, another theme that we find here, not only in the person of Jesus Christ is all things in existence, but life is founded in him. That he is going to be the source of life for all, particularly for those who believe. And that our belief must be in him, not only as our creator, as our God, as the eternal one, but as the one who will provide us life, not only physical life that we enjoy now, but eternal life that he has offered, and this is the light of men. And this is another theme that we have seen, that Jesus Christ has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, that the life is the light. It is that which draws men to him. As, as we have seen throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus Christ came upon the scene, intent upon drawing, men to, drawing men's attention to himself that that was one of the primary mechanisms by which he would share the light. And light in its very nature uh, drives out darkness and is attractive. Uh, there's nothing, uh, sometimes it gets people's attention more in night scenes than the light that is seen in those night scenes. Uh, and we understand that Jesus Christ is that light of men. It shines in the darkness. And then that other theme that very frightening theme of John, and that is that just because there's light, just because Jesus Christ has come and drawn attention to himself, just because he is the author of life, and indeed the author and the, the, the creator of all that exists, does not mean that men are ready to receive that. And in fact, this was a concern of John late in the first century, in most all of his writing, was that men are not prepared to receive Jesus Christ at the level that we need to, that he is the word, that he is the beginning of all things, and that he is the source of your life, that he is God, that he is the great I am. And we can jump down to uh, this concept of light that was born witness by John, and we're going we're to see some of that, of his voice calling out in the wilderness to prepare the way. Uh, Jesus Christ did not come in secret. It was very obvious. It was very planned. It was from his birth narrative uh, to the ministry of John the Baptist and then to Jesus' own ministry. It was a very public ministry. Not hidden, not something you had to ferret out. It was very obvious, as we'll see. And thus was the light. He was in the world, verse 10 tells us of John 1, he, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the concept of this new birth is, again, one of the major themes, but it is reserved for those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. Then please notice in verse 12, to them who believe in his name. His name is not the actions that he has done. His name is not the totality of his teachings. His name is his very person, the very person of who he is. And this is the thrust of John's concept of eternal security. How do I know that I have truly believed in Jesus Christ? Do I believe in his name? And we are going to look at that again because it is one of the major purposes of John, almost all of John's writing. It is is perhaps uh, most succinctly stated in 1 John 5 where he says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. It is of John's great concern already with the church just a few decades old that people don't know whether or not they have eternal life because they aren't evidencing Christianity in their lives. They are making a profession of faith in Christ, but that is not sufficient. And he wants us to know that we have eternal life, and that is built upon a belief not in the works of Jesus, not in the words of Jesus, but ultimately in Jesus himself, his name. That if you believe in his name, in who he is, and, and all of who he is, which, is, which John has just already introduced us to, that he is the creator of all that exists. In him we have our complete and utter uh, re- reliance. We derive all of our existence from him, and every good and perfect thing comes from above, from the Father of lights, and that Jesus Christ is the great I am. This is what John wanted to communicate, and he wants to distinguish this birth, this new birth that comes by full belief in the name of Jesus Christ, that it is God's desire that Jesus Christ came and accomplished the work of that perfect life, living among us and his example, doing that work of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that God sent him to do, and that is to pay the penalty for our sin. That then the Father, having received that payment, so to speak, raised him from the dead and received him into heaven. This is the purposes of God. And thus, we are born physically, but then we are also need to be born spiritually. And just as our physical birth was not your choice, your physical birth was not your production, uh, and it was your parents that provided you that, that physical birth. And we're going to obviously see Jesus touch on this very theme in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. You must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, Jesus is going to say there. And we have this, this concept that uh, this is God's will. God's will is to give birth to us, to give spiritual birth to all men. And it is for us to receive it. And the supply, the provision, the, all that is necessary to accomplish your, your salvation is done in Jesus Christ. It is a completed package. It is a gift of God. There is nothing that needs to be added to it. And there certainly can be nothing detracted from it 
without doing injury to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the Father himself. And so this is God's will, that all men everywhere should come to repentance, uh, not of one breed, not of one class, not one of one creed, but of one uh, belief in Jesus Christ, that all who receive him. And this is one of the major themes of the scripture, as well as John, particularly here, that this is God's desire. Uh, and does that mean the will of man is not engaged in this process? Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth, as we have plainly seen throughout the Gospel of John. No one, it says in verse 18, has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. John begins early on here by where we ended last two weeks, and that is with Jesus Christ no longer here but in heaven. Do you notice that the statement is that he is now in the bosom of the Father. So John is writing post-ascension and is declaring the ascension by talking about Jesus is no longer here. But notice, he is in, currently, in the bosom of the Father. He is there. But while he was here, and even from there, it is he who will be the declarer, the revealer of God. That we do not know God unless we know Jesus Christ. So you cannot... Uh, comprehend the work of the Father without uh, coming through the Son, Jesus Christ. And thus we looked at the pre-incarnate work of Christ, that he was, didn't just come into existence at his incarnation, as we already saw, the Word was there from the beginning. He has always been, for he is God. And we have seen him revealed to us in these days in the, in the human uh, capacity of Christ, I don't want to say form because there's those that teach that, well, he took on a form of a man and put it off. No, he became man. And as a man, he revealed himself, but he revealed himself prior to that. And so every revelation of the person of God, all the way back to Hagar, um, uh, uh, lost in the wilderness, saying, I've seen the Lord, is a presentation of Jesus Christ. He is the revealer of the Father. He is the one who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it is he that we look to to understand the Father um, and to see him, to declare him, to have evidence of him. And thus Jesus says to his disciples, even very late the night before, uh, the night of his betrayal, the night of his arrest, it says, don't you understand yet that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, have I been so long with you and I taught you so much and you grasp it so little? When they say, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. And Jesus Christ just, oh, face palm, you know, and, and because don't you get it all along? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is a primary and, and very necessary theme that we must grasp if we're going to really, truly come to a mature, saving faith. And those two words need to go together in your, in your thinking regarding faith. Is it mature, saving faith? For it is evident throughout here in the Gospel of John that there are many who trusted in Jesus on some level uh, for a season. But it was not saving for them. It was not delivering them from their sin. It would not redeem them. For all men have the capacity of faith. That much is very evident to us. And it is also evident that we are able to deceive ourselves in thinking we have a level of faith that is sufficient to meet the standards of God. 
and deceive ourselves into thinking that when our faith is not sufficient. There are many who follow Jesus because of his signs, and many who wouldn't follow Jesus even with the signs. And the signs Jesus said should have been enough to get you started on the road of faith. But it is not the start that is accomplishing your, your deliverance. It is the maturing. It is the conclusion of it that is of great concern to John and should be of great concern to us. And so where do we look for, to for that? We look to Jesus Christ. We look to not only his works, not only his teaching, but to his person. And this is what we are called to, to look upon God by looking upon Jesus Christ. He is the revealer. He is the declarer of the Son, I'm sorry, of the Father. This is the Son. He is now in the bosom of the Father. I invite you to press on. Again, we cannot take a lot of time. And we find that in the presentation of Jesus Christ, what is his description? Immediately we are understand from the testimony, not only of Jesus, not till Jesus. We haven't heard from Jesus yet, but from John the Baptist, we know immediately what his purpose was. Why was he born? Why is he here? What well, is not to bring in the kingdom of heaven in the sense that the Israelites were thinking that they would throw off the Romans. No, that is not the kingdom of heaven that John describes. And John the Baptist prepares the hearts and minds for his followers to understand that when he sees Jesus Christ, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And every, every Israelite has to understand immediately when that is the designation put upon a man, what the purpose of a lamb is in reference to your sin. The lamb's purpose is to have his blood shed to cover your sin. And so even before anyone was introduced to Jesus Christ, before Jesus taught one word, we have the word of John the Baptist on the, on the visual identification of Jesus, whom he uh, has told uh, people about. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then when Jesus does arrive, he says, Behold, in verse 29 of chapter 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And already John the Baptist's testimony is, this is a man that did not begin in Bethlehem, but it pre-existed all of us, because remember that John the Baptist is a few months older than Jesus. But he says, Jesus was before me, and he is above me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Again, the revelation of Jesus, of God the Father, through Jesus Christ. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And again, the evidence of the testimony of the baptism of Jesus. And again and again, this is the designation that John the Baptist consistently uses, Behold the Lamb of God. And of course, the disciples go after him and follow after him. We have the introduction to some of the works of Jesus and the necessary authority behind those works. Please understand that the works were needed. We are not trying to diminish the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. We are simply saying that the need to see these kinds of physical, miraculous manifestations is the least level of faith. It is the smallest faith that says, I'll believe if I see is a faith of Tazas, until I see his hands and his hide, then I touch it myself, I won't believe. 
unless you do some miracle before me today, and Jesus Christ himself coming to one point along his ministry says that all you people want are signs, signs. How many more signs do I have to give you? Why can't your faith be drawn up into another layer? But it doesn't diminish the necessity, and Jesus Christ is willing to participate in that miraculous work because the prophets declare that it was necessary that he uh, perform these miraculous works. Again, he is the light penetrating the darkness to draw attention to himself, but the works themselves were not sufficient. The miracles themselves is not really the culmination of his ministry. It was only the initiation of his ministry. And we have flipped this thing around upside down and said, well, if you're spiritual and really mature, you're going to have these miracles as part of your life. But we find a biblical record that's the reverse that is the weak and the miserable and the, and the little of faith that need all of this reinforcement to believe. And that that belief is not secure. That that level of belief is not safe. That level of belief is not mature. It is immature. And we need to press on, but it is a beginning. And we see Jesus performing miracle after miracle, engaging people and whether it be a miracle of healing or of, the, of changing water to wine or of, or of the miracle of just knowing your background. That when you walk to a well and seek water, that he can just tell you your whole life. That knowledge, that even compel one of the twelve to become a disciple because of the knowledge that Jesus had of whatever was going on underneath that tree in his life. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. And tells him the knowledge. So we see this power exposed not only in power over illness and injury and eventually even death itself with Lazarus, um, not only over the spiritual realm of, of the demoniacs, uh, and the demons and, and all that was entailed there, but also the, the authority and the power of knowledge that he possessed, not only in the teaching in the temple, uh, but in the knowledge of people's lives. And remember, John records for us that Jesus didn't have anyone needing him, needed anyone to tell him what was going on because he knew what was in the hearts and minds of the people he was teaching. You couldn't pull one over on him at all, ever. And even if he wasn't there, he heard your words. And so when he appears to the disciples, and he goes in the second appearance, uh, eight days, the eighth day of his resurrection, and he comes up and no one has to say anything, goes right to the man and says, here, I heard what you said. I wasn't in the room at the time, but I heard it. Put your hand right here. Touch me. So you will believe. If this is an infantile level of belief, that you have to have at this point, then I'll help you over that. And this is the concern of John, that, that is that the church was being filled up with infantile faith instead of mature faith. It was concern that is evidenced throughout his gospel. You see, if all we want is the continuation of these sign gifts, and the early church in its infancy needed those as well. 
from its very beginning, if we go in the book of Acts, yes, they had the infancy. In fact, Jesus Christ told his disciples that they would do greater works than he did. Because in the infancy of the church, they, in their, in their uh, new faith, uh, they, they needed it. But by the time we have the completion of the New Testament and the maturation of the church, it was less and less necessary. For we had more and more of a mature grasp of the truth. Does that mean that God isn't capable of doing wondrous things today? He certainly is. Who needs it the most? Is it the mature Christian or is it the unbelievers? Or the infantile faiths? But you see, we keep associating, well, to prove, well, if you need proof of God beyond the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, then your faith is infantile and insecure. For the resurrection and ascension of, of our Lord is sufficient. It is the greatest sign that Jesus said, I can give you. Greater than any healing, greater than any provision. Uh, if you're hungry and you got some fish and loaves, you can feed your whole family and everyone else's family in the neighborhood, right? If Jesus is there, that's what we need. No, I've seen the power of the resurrection and the ascension of my Lord in my life. I do not require that any longer. My faith has matured. But the necessity of these signs is there. It is for the Samaritan who comes in, who is caught in adultery and, and is in the cycles of destructive relationships who needs that sign. It is those that, that have been uh, sitting by the pool and, and, and can't get in there and, and don't even know that Jesus is behind them and doesn't even know who they're talking to gets healed that needs to be confronted with these kinds of signs. Remember that Jesus frequently did those signs purposefully on the Sabbath. Not only to do a sign for the weak and the, and the possibly even irreligious, but particularly to get the attention of the religious leadership, who also needed a greater a faith in him. And this is another concern of John that we lost track of later on in the book as we focused in on the 11 and the last uh, third of the book. But remember that middle third was the interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. That it is there that Jesus created opportunities to have conflict that we see presaged for us in, in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to him at night and says, great teacher, you know, and doesn't even know what to ask, and Jesus Christ answers him, you must be born again, and he doesn't get it. And from there forward, we see Jesus Christ engaging his enemies, purposely healing on the Sabbath, just to create conflict, to create a, a, an opposition, and to expose them, that while they look very religious, while they have all the trappings of faith around them and upon them, while men might look at them and see these great giants of faith, Jesus Christ looks at them as faithless, for they trust in themselves and in their keeping of the law, and they do not do what John requires uh, or describes as requiring of God, or God requiring of us, is that we trust in Jesus Christ, the one who created us, and in him alone. And so by what authority does Jesus Christ do all these things? This is a great question. 
a question that is asked Jesus again and again. By what authority do you do these things? And when Jesus Christ gives them the answer, they pull their hair out with rage because he is claiming to be God. By what authority do this? I am. That's the authority by which I do this. That was the ultimate answer because I am God. I have the authority over the temple and thus he cleanses it not once but twice. We have authority over the demons because I am God. I have authority over your bodies and over your, your knowledge. I have authority to raise the dead. I have authority to do these things because I am. Before Abraham was, I am. His enemies completely understood his claim. There could be no confusion here that somehow he didn't really mean what he said. His, own, his enemies knew what he, what he entailed. He never corrected them. And he always received the worship of those who identified him as the Son of God. This is the one we trust in. And he creates conflict in our life to bring us to an understanding that we are not where we need to be. And it is the way of our society today to try to avoid those kinds of confrontations and conflicts in our life. And so we avoid God's word, frankly, because there's a lot of conflict there. It says one thing, I'm doing something else, oh, and we have dissonance, and we don't know what to do with that. So we leave God's word alone so I can just keep tooling along, living my life the way I want to, just like the Pharisees, thinking I'm fine with God, and just don't rub me the wrong way. Don't step on my toes. Don't judge me. And here comes a carpenter's son out of nowhere saying you got it all wrong. Not only do you, you don't, you don't even have infantile faith because you don't even believe the signs. Why don't you believe the signs themselves? At least get to that level. You won't even get to that level because you trust completely in your religious trappings because of you keeping uh, the Sabbath and because you, you go to the temple every day, because you have this working knowledge of the law uh, and, and, and you know all the loopholes and you've created more loopholes. You think that, and because everyone looks up to you, that that's equivalent to believing in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, no. By what authority do you do these things? I am. I have the authority to judge you. Because I am the I am. And I'm going to expose that and expose it and expose it again. And by putting himself into direct conflict with them, knowing their buttons and how to push them, he does it consistently to bring out the hypocrisy of going to all the motions of religion with no relationship with the author of it all, Jesus Christ, God the Father. And thus, from one end of the perspective, we might look at the hated Samaritan all the way to the other end of the perspective. Jesus Christ is seeking to draw all men to himself. And we see the power of that exercise of God's will that all men everywhere come to repentance. He withheld it from no one whether it be the noble or the, the impoverished, he held it from no one. Whether it be the widow 
or the rich Pharisee held it back from no one. He gave them all the truth. Women, men, that alone is overwhelming to the early readers of this book and the watchers of Jesus Christ's ministry, that he would eat with publicans and sinners, and yet he could stride his way through the temple and engage the greatest rabbis of Israel and humiliate them by his knowledge of God's word, because he is the I am. By what authority do you do these things? And it is this that we must key in on in recognizing how do I get from this infantile faith that Jesus Christ has to do these works to sustain me as his follower to a mature faith that has a settledness and a confidence in Jesus Christ is to recognize not the particular of every miracle, but the authority behind those miracles, and that is the authority of who he is. And it doesn't only apply to the miracles, but also applies to the second state of faith, and that is to his teaching. And this is how he engaged the religious. He engaged the, the somewhat irreligious and weak uh, through the miraculous signs that the religious wanted to uh, question, ignore, challenge, uh, deny. But when it came to the religious people, the way he challenged them was through his teaching. He gave them really difficult things. You have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. That I am the bread from heaven. Not the bread that came down from Moses. I am the bread from heaven. Remember, that's one of the great I am statements that we look through throughout John. All these I ams. I am the bread from heaven. You're going to have to eat of me if you want part of my kingdom. And so his teachings became more difficult and, and challenged the, the status quo of all the religious people, and this brought friction. And now people who believe the signs say, could anyone do anything greater than this? Here's a lame man walking. Here's a blind man seeing. Here's a demoniac in his right mind walking about, being productive. Here's a leper cleansed. And so they could follow that kind of a person who can, who can take little loaves and feed 5,000. That kind of person, I'll follow, I'll follow me. We're looking at all the things he does. But then he says, I am the bread from heaven. And if you don't eat of me, you don't, <laughs> you're not part of my kingdom. Ah, uh, this is getting tough. To draw people to this next level of faith uh, into the teaching of Jesus Christ, challenge their thinking and all of their notions and to raise them up from the flesh to the spirit, which is exactly what we were introduced to in chapter 1. That which is of the flesh is flesh, and that which is of the spirit is spirit. We saw it in chapter 1, we see it in chapter 3. This is a, a, an underlying current of Jesus Christ trying to draw people. You saw the signs and they were... Spirit, there were, there were physical signs. You, you ate that food. You were healed of that disease. You, you had that revelation that he knows your history and your present. Now, can we get out of the flesh and into the spirit and talk about spiritual truths? And this is the transition from an infantile faith to an adolescent faith. Can I trust Jesus Christ 
teaching. Even though I don't really comprehend it all, even though some of it drives me nuts sometimes, just thinking on it, and, and I can't sometimes make heads or tails of it, but it says it, and therefore I believe I, I can't see the, the purpose of it. And much like those adolescents who challenge their parents' instruction because they don't understand the purposes behind them. To them, parents are just there to make their lives miserable, and they don't understand that we are training you to be adults because this is the reality in adult world. And we want to prepare you for that, and that is what uh, adolescents are fighting against. Really, they're fighting against becoming adults. Because we're trying to move them from being a child where you get everything you ask for and everything is cared for to, to understanding personal responsibility, to understanding that there are consequences to actions, to understanding that you're going to have to have character, that you do the right thing when no one's watching. That this is who you are. We try to instill that and they react against that. And that is where the conflict comes between adolescents and, and parents. And it's where the conflict comes between us and God. When God wants to get us to a maturity, he knows that we need to have mature faith. So where do we have that challenge? Well, we go from the flesh to the spirit. That transition is adolescence. And adolescent faith requires solid, consistent teaching. And even though you don't get it all, even though you don't understand the full purposes because you're not mature enough to understand it, you don't have to, turn understand, to understand, why do I have to suffer? Which is what we're going to study in 1 Peter, so that's on my brain. Why do I have to suffer? Well, it's the infantile faith that keeps, that says I'm going to turn away from God because I have to suffer. The adolescent faith is preparing us to have mature faith that can suffer with joy. Because we learned our lessons well here in the instruction period through the words of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would have faith to get out of the flesh and into the spirit. That when Jesus Christ says, I am the bread of life, that he's not talking about eating him physically, but of spiritually drawing from him. That his sacrifice is for me. I make it my own. I internalize what Christ has done on the cross, what God did in the empty tomb, and what has been accomplished through the resurrection and the ascension. I've internalized, I've made it me. Just as I do with food physically, I want to do it with Jesus Christ spiritually. And so we find that when confronted with this call of Jesus Christ to adolescent faith, those who were following him hated him. And it's not so odd once I put it in the terms of adolescence and parenting, is it? It's suddenly not so odd. We go, how can some people believe in him at the front end of the chapter in chapter uh, 8 and 9? How can people believe in him at the front end of a chapter and then hate him and want to kill him by the end of the chapter? Well, you just welcome a 12-year-old into your life because that's what they're like. 13, really. They love you because you fed them, took care of them, nurtured them, fixed all their boo-boos, all those kind of things. You coddled them. You did all of that for all these years. And then they become adolescents and they hate you because they do not want to transition into adulthood. Because frankly, we all want that. We, 
That's why we have people that are 30 years old still acting like adolescents because they don't want to transition to adulthood. And suddenly the child that is loving and caring and, and receiving of, of all this physical benefit of your care is your enemy. And spiritually, that is what is happening here is they are turning against Jesus Christ as they don't like what they're hearing because they don't understand that we're drawing you from the flesh to the spirit. We're drawing you from, the, from infancy to adulthood. And to get you there requires us to transition you. And Jesus Christ's teaching was intended not only to bring conflict with the religious smug people, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, but to challenge people to get out of the physical realm and start thinking spiritually. Something even the disciples just weren't always up to. And this is the great challenge. And a recognition that most of the time when we are in conflict with God's word, that it is our adolescent faith that keeps us from getting to maturity. Because we don't tolerate teaching. And we have a wonderful society, free society here where if you don't like a teaching, you just get up, walk out, and go find something you do like. And I invite adolescents to do that all the time. You don't like this home? Leave. Spiritually, you have the, the right to do that. And there's plenty of people out there that will, that will give you sugar. Right? Go to grandma's house, she'll give you candy bars. You know, but you're eating those green beans here. You're in my house. Okay, by the way, my grandkids don't get that. All right, they, they, we're, we're, I'm tough as a tree stump, just older. All right, and so, maybe tougher. <laughs> go, go on out there. And so they leave, they fo stop following after Jesus. Oh, I can't follow him. Listen to what he's teaching me, because you cannot get yourself to understand because you don't see the end, you don't want to go through the transition. You want to stay in infancy. You want to stay coddled. You want to stay irresponsible. You want to stay a child. And it is solid biblical teaching that, that rubs against our practice, rubs against our belief system, rubs against our comfort zone that's going to move us to maturity I know that. Jesus Christ knew that. John knew that. Um, because from the side of maturity, just like parents know that children have got to figure things out because pretty soon they're going to be out in the real world and not in this little bubble of their home where all the hard decisions are made by mommy and daddy. And so adolescence is that battle. And frankly, spiritually, most of our churches are full of adolescent faith. And my contention is it's not saving faith. Because you're prepared to walk away from the truth. Remember that the revelation of God is the truth. Go back again to John chapter 1. What is it that we are told? Verse 9, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. It is the truth. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth. And it is the truth that we are fighting against. It's really not mom and dad they're fighting against. It's the truth of the reality of life. And it, when we are confronted with God's word and we don't want to keep it because it offends us, because we have our 
comfort zone that we have built our own uh, very well developed sometimes concept of what God teaches and we come to God's word and we can't make God's word conform to it and there is, we just avoid God's word or manipulate it. It's called eisegesis. Instead of letting God's word conform us, we want to conform God's word to us. This is adolescent faith. It says, I can't tolerate the teaching of Jesus Christ because I don't want to get out of my comfort zone into the spiritual realm that demands something much more of me, including putting away childish things. Brethren, the one thing that keeps us from mature faith is that we will not put down our toys. Frankly. We want to be children. Spiritually. And we won't put down the toys. Our favorite little things that we know God's word is against. But we keep them. We cherish them. They are our idols. And they keep us infantile. And they keep you insecure in your Relationship with God. Put away childish things. Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. What was he referring to? The miracles. <laughs> the sign gifts. That's 1 Corinthians 13. When I became a man, I put away childish things. I don't need those things anymore. But I see all these Christians who have this knowledge of God's word, who claim to have it, and, but they have adolescent faith because they won't put away their toys. And get into the spiritual realm and get into mature faith. Oh, that we put away our toys. And I'm not just talking about spiritual toys of, of what your belief system, but I'm talking about literally physical toys. We're at a point where we make idols of things and they captivate our attention and our thought that we can't even meditate on God's word for longer than five minutes. Because our little eye God has fried our brains from concentrated effort because they change an image every two and a half seconds in front of us. And we wonder why our brains can't focus for a 35-minute message. Well, 45. <laughs> I usually preach longer than 35 minutes. Put away the toys that we might grow to maturity. So I see within the church of Jesus Christ, when I look and I watch them from afar, and I get a lot more opportunities since COVID to do that because they're all online now instead of in their churches. And I get to see what they're teaching, and I'm like, oh, 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 what infantile teaching. And it's not even biblical, but it makes people feel good. And they'll flock there to hear it. Or it's the premise of, it's, it's, it's pharisaical teaching that isn't conforming with God's word. And, and anyone that comes in with the Bible should be, the conflict should be evident there. I could easily stand up and create a firestorm. Kind of like Jesus walking in and healing on the Sabbath. <laughs> because this is our comfortable teaching that we've, we've very carefully structured and developed and, and, and we all hear each other and read each other and, and then someone comes in and says, but God's word says this, whosoever will may come. Firestorm. Jesus Christ teaching not only 
impacted those that were still infantile in their faith and would not transition into adolescence, but it also took on the conflict of those who had no faith, genuine, but had lots of religion. And this Jesus did consistently again and again, and then for his own. For those faithful, those 11 that followed him all the way through, and while they had their misgivings and their shortcomings, and, they, and we can point to evidences that they just didn't get it along the way, they stuck it out. Because that's what good adolescence is like. If you have a good adolescence, you didn't understand everything your parents thought, thought it, it brought conflict into your thinking, you thought they didn't understand you, when the fact is you didn't understand them. But you stuck it out, and you stayed there, and you said, well, you know, they have a, and maybe you notice that, well, my parents seem to have a pretty decent life. Maybe I should listen to them every now, every now that, you know, great revelation came upon you that maybe I should just listen every now and then instead of fight everything they say. And Christians out there finally get it. Maybe I should be reading God's word and just give up on these pet, prod, pet, pet ideas I have that were ingrained in me from my great-great-grandparents or whoever it was. And, and start really getting into God's word. And this is the end of, of adolescent faith and beginning of mature faith. I'm willing to receive the teaching of Jesus Christ. Even though I don't fully understand what it's about, I trust the one who's teaching me that they know what it's all about. And that's really all you need to ask of an adolescent. That's really all an adolescent needs. We don't have any teenagers in here this morning. I'm looking around. Um, no. Uh, but that's really all you need from an adolescent. Daniel's getting close. You just need him to understand. You don't have to understand everything I'm communicating to you, but you just need to trust that I do understand what I'm teaching you. And that's what the disciples did. They didn't understand all of Jesus' teaching. They were hard for them, too. They scratched their heads, and in the very end, they're like, show us the Father. That'll be good enough. You know, just like, ugh. But while you didn't get it, the point of getting through adolescence is trusting the one who is doing the teaching because of who he is, and that's what mature faith is. I can overcome the hard teachings of Jesus Christ. I can endure them and I can grow in them. I can, I can deposit them into my brain without fully comprehending them. I can even adapt my life to them to, to the degree that I'm able to and not really fully appreciate them. But I trust the one who told me. I trust Jesus Christ because of who he is. Because he has the authority over the demons. He has the authority over illness. He has the authority over the temple. He has the authority over knowledge. He has, he has the authority. He is the I am. And so I will trust him. That he knows what he's talking about. Even if I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> even if I don't get it all the time. He gets it. And I'm going to follow him. Because he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Word incarnate become flesh. He is the revealer of the Father. He has declared him. And because of that, I'm going to get through this adolescence of faith to a mature faith. 
And that is the tail end of adolescent faith and a transition very quickly into mature faith. And that is that Jesus Christ is trustworthy. This scripture I will follow even when I read it and I go, oh, I don't like that verse. I will obey it. It goes against my, my society. My society says I have all these rights. And then the Bible comes in and says you don't have that right. Who do you think you are? And that's the question. Who do you think you are? Do you think you're a mature faith? Then why can't you accept Scripture's authority? You think you're mature enough to decide better than God. I would contend you're an infantile faith or you're a pharisaical faith. It says I can read God's word and ignore it because that's essentially what the Pharisees did and create my own system around this. No, mature faith has gotten through the latter stages of adolescence and recognized the authority lies in Jesus Christ. And it trumps my authority over my life. And so I trust him with me. And this, brethren, is saving faith. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That we fully surrender our authority to his authority. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Is that I have surrendered myself. We sing the song, all to Jesus I have surrendered. And we forget the first word is the critical one. All. All to Jesus I surrender. Give it up. And this is the saving faith. That we have gotten past the infantile. We have, we have struggled through the adolescent. And now we recognize it's Jesus. What am I, what am I fighting him for? It's, it's God's word. Why am I fighting it? Why won't I just surrender to it? Why don't I trust God? I'll trust lawyers. I'll trust doctors. I'll trust politicians. I don't know why you do that. <laughs> they give you no reason to. I'll trust all these other entities, but I won't trust God's word. How is that mature faith? It isn't. The likelihood is that the majority of those in churches today have adolescent faith at best. Because they're not getting hard teaching from their pulpit because the people behind the pulpit are afraid you'll walk away which you will if you're an adolescent because the one you love that gave you the milk, when he gives you meat, you hate and run away. This is the reality of adolescence. And adolescent faith is not saving. It's when we have Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, that he is our all in all, that we trust him. And this is that calling of John throughout this and we see it in John or in Jesus' engagement with his disciples saying listen um, the mature the end of mature faith is joy and peace there is a joy and a peace waiting for you at the end and finally Jesus lays it out there and says listen you've gone through the adolescence you've, you've had hard teaching you still don't get it but at least now you trust the one who taught you enough to stay with me, 
Uh, one of you didn't. One out of the 12 didn't. Couldn't handle it. Couldn't get out of a physical kingdom to a spiritual kingdom. Couldn't get over that. Saw all the signs, all of that, and still betrayed his Lord. But you guys stuck through here. I want you to understand, here's what the difficult teachings are all about. You can have real peace and real joy. But it's not for the faint of heart. It's for those who abide in me. And my word abides in them. It's for those who love me and love one another that obey my word. Those that endure persecution. Those, and he goes through that whole list with his, finest, with, his, with his final 11. And he's, listen, the joy and peace is there, but you've got to endure all of this. The love of God is there. You it's, it's, need to be reciprocated. You have to have this complete surrender. For three chapters, we have this engagement. And at the end of it, he says, listen, I know you don't understand all this, but the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he's going to come with great power into your life, and he's going to bring these truths to memory. It's not that you don't know what you need to know. It's that you haven't understood what you know. I've taught you everything you need to know. You just don't understand what you know. And the Holy Spirit comes in and brings that understanding to that, to that knowledge base. But we want the Holy Spirit because we're infantile, just come in and just dump on us and, and bottle feed us. We want him to, to give us supernatural knowledge and so we lust after these, these revelatory gifts. Oh, if only I could have visions and dreams and and. Speak in tongues is all that's going to, and prophesy. If only I could have that. Well, you're lusting after bottle feeding infantile faith. What kind of mature faith is that? Oh no, put away the toys. Become a man in your faith that we can have joy and peace no matter the circumstances around us. That when they haul us in and tell us, don't you preach in that name, and they threaten you and then beat you, you can walk out with joy that you're counted worthy of suffering for his name's sake. Oh, that's mature faith. That kind of joy. Not joy when everything goes your way and you had a great day and you can end it with ice cream. That's what I did last, yesterday. Okay? Had lots of help, got the job done, which is beyond my, my, my imagination. I, I just couldn't even imagine we got all that done and went home and had them all. I mean, uh, what, other than the traffic in between. Oh no, joy when there's suffering and threats. When I have to walk through the fire to prove my faith. Can we do it with joy and peace? This is the evidence of mature faith. That I truly trust Jesus Christ because my eyes aren't looking at the suffering, they're looking well beyond that to the promises of God. And that I am dependent upon the Spirit of God within me and abiding in the Word of God. And, and remember the Word that became flesh, abiding in Christ and His words abide in me. Oh, that God's word would abide in us. And then, 
having taught them to pray for them and recognize that we have an advocate, that this one who created all things and who is life and the light of men, who shines in the darkness, who has done all the signs to bring us at least to infantile faith, at least get there, and then teach us that we might get through those adolescent faith to mature faith, that we might have peace and joy, that this one is an advocate for us before the Father this very day in heavenly places. This is who your Savior is. By the power of the ascension, he is there today on your behalf, covering your sin and praying the Father that he would guard your hearts and minds to that day when we must all give an accounting before him. This is our Savior. This is the one that John calls us to trust him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that do not deceive ourselves into thinking that infantile faith is sufficient faith, that adolescent faith is dependable faith. Do not believe that religious accoutrements around your life equal any faith at all. Oh, get to the mature faith. You're abiding in him, and his word abides in you that you keep his commandments, that you love one another, that you endure persecution. All those things that we talked about in John 14, 15, and 16. Abide in the vine. This is the avenue. This is the, the movement that God wants. And the, and the goal, the culmination of it is that perfect peace and perfect joy found in the love of God as we surrender all our authority to his authority. This is what it means to become a Christian. A little Christ. That it fills and captivates our life. That we long for him day by day to be obedient to him and following after his word. And then we can come to that point of sitting down with our Lord and say, we can't wait till you come. But we will wait. And we will be faithful till that day, no matter what we have to endure between now and that day. And we can, like Peter hear the words of what our demise might be and keep pressing on for Christ. Or we could, like John, hear there might be an opening for us in the rapture call. We might endure to that day and keep serving Christ. Whichever way it is that we will keep serving our Lord who created it all and is now ascended to heaven and is there by the precious shedding of his blood to cover our sin by the power of the ascension to represent us there in the throne room of God. And it is for him that we wait with great expectation, but also with great responsibility because as mature believers, we understand the world. We understand that we are the warriors, that this is a battlefield. And we understand whose side we are on. The adolescent's not sure whose side they're on. Am I on the side of my peers or am I on the side of my parents? Am I a child or am I an adult? I can't figure it out. 
But we know the mature whose side we're on. We know where the lines are drawn. We know the end. And therefore we will live responsibly in the interim. For there is a day of accounting that we must all have. And so the invitation of John in all of his writing really is do not get caught in the traps of this world. Do not get caught in infantile faith and think it's sufficient. Do not get confused during adolescent faith and wander off. Oh no, come to mature faith. Stand. And in the letters to the churches in Revelation, he challenges each of them, you're in danger, you're in danger, you're in danger, except to the one mature church. You figured it out. Let us be of such an ilk here that we'll tolerate the harsh, sometimes difficult teaching of God's word and not ignore it, but conform to it and humble ourselves before it and say, I surrender my pet beliefs, my pet actions, my pet societal norms, and just think about society. Who decides society? It's not Jesus Christ, not God's word. It's fallen men. I will follow Jesus. I'll abandon these toys to go after my Lord and Savior with all my heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for a wonderful study in the Gospel of John. Lord, we understand that our faith must be built upon you and you alone. What you've done, what you've taught, certainly. We see your hand and we recognize its authority and power. But Lord, we know that you are God. You are the I am. You are the only way. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to understand what we know. And to bring it into our very lives. And Lord, we know that we need to apply what we already have even as we ask for more. And that you wait upon us to receive some teaching before you give us much teaching. Lord, we wait upon you to come. But we also recognize that that waiting is to be filled with activity. We pray that we might be your ambassadors here to your coming. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.